0: But first, we start with our great pipeline debate. Now we're focused today on the Coastal Gas Link pipeline, six point eight billion dollars being built to supply natural gas to that LNG Canada export terminal in Kitimat, and that's an even bigger mega project. It's the biggest in Canadian history. Now, there's been a lot of controversy over this project, to say the least. The pipeline is op- opposed by environmental groups who argue Canada should not be building more pipelines and extracting more fossil fuel because of the threat of climate change. Opponents of the project have often pointed to indigenous opposition to that pipeline, notably the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. But here's the new development on this now. The company building the pipeline says they've offered to sell part of it to First Nations along the pipeline route. Sixteen First Nations say I've entered into negotiations to buy a 10% equity share in that pipeline does this change the equation here now have a listen to this this is an ad from coastal gas Link pipeline and you'll hear they here talking about their support from indigenous people working on the project and you'll hear from ashley who's an indigenous leader working on the pipeline have a listen to this ad
1: i'm being a steward to my land and i'm being a defender being the voice and representing my community in that my name is ashley I'm from Nikosli. I am a CMCL Construction Monitor Community Liaison Advisor. It's how people got from A to B. It's where hunting and trapping and everything stems from. and The fish and all the wildlife that surround it and are in it is a big part of who we are as people. Yeah, it's our livelihood.
0: Okay, so you can see how the company really wants to emphasize that, the Indigenous support for this project. All right, let's discuss it now. Got an awesome panel for you. Kathleen Connolly is back, Chief Executive Officer at the Dawson Creek Chamber of Commerce. She supports the pipeline. Hi, Kathleen. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on once again. Also on the line, Dr. Tim Takero from Simon Fraser University. He opposes the pipeline. He's been arrested for blocking pipeline construction. Hiya, Tim. Hello, Mike. Nice okay, to be with thank you. Thank you to have you. It's great to have you both back on the show, Kathleen Conley. Let me go to you first. This is a project. I know it's important up where you live in Dawson Creek. What do you think about this news that you've got First Nations are uh, entered into negotiations here now to buy actually buy a piece of this pipeline? Is that a good thing?
2: Oh, it's fabulous, and you know, I think when you look at uh, the development, the work that Coastal Gas has done over the last ten years. To build the relationships and the trust with Indigenous communities. And talking to them yesterday, it's actually 18 of the 20 nations that have signed on to that uh, equity. Yeah, so it's significant. And I think it does speak to the fact if we look at the recent Yahi ruling. Um, you know, it speaks to government recognizing First Nations have been and will always be good stewards of the land. We've seen it through Caribou Partnership Agreements. We've seen it through a lot of different things in the Northeast where government is recognizing the First Nations care and have cared historically very much about the environment, the land and the wildlife. And so I think that finally recognizing um, that traditional knowledge and that capacity, number one, from government and from coastal gas and industry, and number two from First Nations communities saying we want to be a part of the environmental stewardship of these large industrial projects is significant. It's a significant statement and it shouldn't be minimized.
0: Okay, let me go to Dr. Tim Ticcaro from Simon Fraser University. Tim, you're a fierce opponent of this project. Does the fact that First Nations may be buying a piece of it here change your opinion in any way?
3: No, it really doesn't, Mike. Um, we're still in a climate emergency. It's increasing every day as our emissions continue to rise. And uh, building new fossil energy infrastructure at this juncture in our um History and development um, makes no sense, no matter who's buying.
0: Kathleen, what do you say to that?
3: That's
2: such a colonial perspective. With all due
3: respect, this is opportunity. Give me a break. I, this is not a colonial.
0: Oh, hang, perspective. hang on, hang on a sec, Tim. A scientific perspective. I'll give you. I'll give you a chance to respond there, Tim. Hang on. Go ahead, Kathleen.
2: So my argument around the scientific perspective would be that certainly those First Nations have access to the same science data and conclusions that you have and believe instead of doing a protest that they actually need to participate in a very real way in creating greener and cleaner economies. I mean, the reality is is that consumer demand for fossil fuels, I was listening to the introduction that Mike had, There's a demand, a scream to lessen the cost of fossil fuels into vehicles in Vancouver today. It's a significant conversation. Consumers want fossil fuels. So we need to make sure that we're producing it in ethical manners that really do respect the greener cleaner. First Nations are participating in
3: that.
0: Okay, Tim, go ahead.
3: Well, just to um, make this into an argument about whether you support Indigenous rights is uh, a fallacious uh, division and it's something that uh, people who call um, other people colonial because they are trying to protect the planet is just sowing division where none is needed. The idea that we can build new fossil energy infrastructure when all of the science points to our need to reduce emissions is crazy and, in fact, suicidal. So this is not about Indigenous rights or sovereignty. This is about reducing Canada's emissions. Because people want more fossil energy doesn't mean that is the thing we should do. We need to take this international crisis and allow it to push us faster the energy transition we all know is required to sustain the future
0: all right welcome back to our pipeline debate my guests are kathleen connolly chief executive officer of the dawson creek Chamber of Commerce. Dr. Tim Takaro, Simon Fraser University. He opposes the pipeline. Kathleen supports the coastal gas link pipeline. We're talking about First Nations buying a piece of this project now. Does it change the argument here in BC? Have a listen to this here now. This is Chief Karina Lewen, who is the chief of the Cheslata Carrier First Nation, and she supports the project and buying a piece, buying a piece of it for her nation. Have a listen to this.
2: It's important for us to have control over the um, environmental assessment process and also to have economic benefits from the project so that we can do the work in our communities to improve the lifestyle
0: of our people. Eve Karina Lewen, who was a guest on the show here last week on this topic. Phone lines are open 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Dave on the line in Vancouver. Hi Dave, go ahead.
4: Hi, Mike. I, I'm with the, I'm with the professor, the doctor. The um, science clearly shows it. It's it's talking from two sides of your face, saying that it's going to be great for economic benefit for these nations. At the same time, take a look at every spring, the ice is melting and the polar bears are swimming endlessly, looking. Okay. Okay. Food thank, th- thanks garbage. for th-
0: thank you for the call. Let me go to Kathleen for uh, for her reaction on that. Kathleen, you know, we did see a brutal period last year where we had floods, we had landslides, we had a deadly heat dome, a lot of people blaming it on climate change. Your, your thoughts on that argument, that this is the emergency that we face, and so we shouldn't be building these projects?
2: Yeah, you know, and I think that we all recognize that climate change is a really big deal. I think that we also recognize that Canada is one of the lowest emitters in the globe. I think we recognize that today China is building building 80, building 80, coal-fired plants as we speak today. I think that we all recognize that there are globally this is an issue. I think that when we look at First Nations choosing to participate in the build of major infrastructure projects, I think it tells us a few things. I think, A, it tells us that collaboration is critical. Being divisive, to the professor's point, is not helpful to anybody. We need to come together as communities. We need to recognize there's a transition phase as we move from fossil fuels into greener, cleaner economies understood by everybody it's the process of how we get there and divisive behaviors like what we're debating today isn't helpful to the overall conversation what is helpful is finding partners who recognize we need to be better at what okay. we're doing and to recognize environmental um, impacts are a part of that
0: okay let me go let me go to tim to for his thoughts on that go ahead tim
3: Well, a couple of things, uh, Mike. First, um, uh, regards to the chief's comments, I am um, fully supportive of um, more Indigenous control over the environment assessment process on their territories. I think this would be an important step towards um, reconciliation, um, and that's a very important thing. Um, Ms. Connolly needs to get her facts right. She said that uh, Canada is one of the lowest emitters on the globe. Uh, I'm not sure where she got that number, but we are one of the highest per capita emitters. So in terms of the number of people who live in Canada, we admit uh, up with the champions of China and the United States. We're in that category. And uh, we are the fourth, or depending on the year, the fifth largest producer of fossil fuels um, on the planet. So this idea that we're uh, somehow goody-two-shoes on climate change is ridiculous. Our, um, our climate policies need to reflect reality. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of good rhetoric okay. by the government about how we're going to do these reductions. We're going to do it, but it's always after this pipeline or after that pipeline, then we're going to do it. It's like, it's like the substance user who just needs one more drink. We just need one more. We just need one more fix, and then we'll stop. But we are not stopping, and here's an opportunity to stop a project that will contribute to climate change and increase emissions.
0: Okay, let's go back to the phone lines here. John, on the North Shore. Hi, John, go ahead.
5: Um, I did, I agree with both people. I, I would say that um, we're, we're so far from reaching the minimum requirement to stop pumping oil at this point. Look at right now, there's no cars to buy. There's not an electric car to buy. Toyota's yeah. Uh, hybrid is two years for a, for a RAV. So I'm not sure what this gentleman's going to do because there's no transit to take all the people that you, you want to stop driving cars in right now. And the, the technology isn't there for, for trucks. So how are we going to transport all our food? And okay, Tim. Trains? Th- like,
0: thank, you, thank you for that. Tim, what do you say to that? Like, you, you often hear this argument, you can't just turn off the switch. Your thoughts?
3: Well, absolutely correct. You can't just turn off the switch, but you have to... Sp- Start being serious about the transition and it's going to be difficult it's going to be expensive and it's an investment in future generations that's very difficult for government to do because they are just so short-sighted okay Uh, Kathleen
0: Kathleen your thoughts
2: yeah the reality is is that we need the fossil fuels are required for the transition that's just the reality in order to create your electric cars in order to create your batteries all of that It is these two different worlds and industries coming together collaboratively to move through that transition. It's not going to happen tomorrow. There is capacity for that, but we need to recognize that fossil fuels are a major part of that transition.
0: Okay, I'll give you uh, 30 seconds just to sum up there, Tim. Go ahead. Well,
3: the problem is that we're in a climate emergency. 740 people died Last year in British Columbia alone uh, from climate change, those numbers are only going to increase. We need to do this transition. Of course, it's not going to happen overnight, but we should not be building new infrastructure that is meant to last for 40 to 50 years when we should be going the other direction. All right. I want to thank. Let's get on the transition. Let's get on
5: it
4: really seriously.
0: All right, let's talk about Canada's soaring debt load now, now more than 1 trillion dollars. We talked about this on the show yesterday. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation, they just unveiled their new federal debt clock. It is on display in Vancouver today. It tracks Canadian debt in real time and man, these are some eye-watering numbers here. Like check this out. So the the uh, the total debt right now on this debt clock is just over $1.1 trillion going up. Is this right? Six, over $16 million an hour? Wow, that's what it says here. The share per Canadian, your individual share of the debt, $30,000 now. If you want to have an idea how quickly the debt has gone up here in recent years, especially during COVID when the government was spending so much money, have a listen to this. This is uh, Conservative MP Michael Cooper in a House of Commons debate. Listen to this.
4: In the more than 150 years since Canada's founding in 1867, total accumulated federal debt equaled $700 billion dollars. In the beginning of 2020, in the span of a single year, that debt level rose an astounding 50% to $1.1 trillion. Okay,
0: so that is a lot of debt right now. Justin Trudeau, though. Defending the country's debt level. He says look we are investing in Canadians We're trying to get the country through this pandemic. Here's what Trudeau has to say about it
3: And yes conservatives kept saying oh, no, you're spending too much on Canadians You have to worry about the economy, but what they don't understand is the economy depends
6: on Canadians
3: and the best way to ensure a strong recovery is to invest in Canadians
0: And that's exactly what we did, despite their cries that we were doing too much. Okay, let's discuss now. We've got a great panel for you on this. Alex Hemingway is an economist with the BC Centre for Policy Alternatives. Hey, Alex. Hey, how you doing, Mike? It's great to have you on again. Franco Terrazano is the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Franco.
4: Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Thank you, gentlemen, for both of you being here. Let me just make sure the numbers are right here on the debt clock, Franco. So it's 16... $16 million an hour, the debt's going up?
4: $4,500 every single second, uh, which means about $400 million every single day. So me and Alex, we might disagree on some policy here, but you know what? It is going to be an expensive disagreement.
0: Okay, $400 million a day added to the debt. Is that right?
4: More, about $400 million every single day added to the debt. And remember, this debt is already more than $1.1 trillion and counting.
0: Yeah, okay. Alex Hemingway, when you hear those numbers, I mean, what goes through your mind as an economist? Is this sustainable? Is it okay? Yeah, people might hear,
7: hear these numbers and, and wonder that, understandably. Uh, the problem is they're not very meaningful on their own. You need to compare it to something. You need to compare it, for example, to our the size of our economy, our economic output, So from from the perspective of uh, an economist, uh, you know, these numbers on their own don't mean a heck of a lot. What you want to do is look at, for example, uh, Canada has uh, the lowest uh, net debt in in the G7. It's even below Germany, which you think of as a very fiscally conservative uh, country. Our interest costs on that debt are near historic lows, even as they're ticking up a little bit with interest rates. They're at some of the lowest levels in our history our debt-to-GDP ratio is uh, leveling off and actually uh, uh, projected to start falling. And that's that's the kind of measure you actually want to look at, that debt-to-GDP ratio. That's what economists pay attention to. That's what credit rating agencies pay attention to. Uh, and, you know, I, I think uh, we probably do have some points of agreement, uh, uh, the two of us on this panel, uh, there are some areas where, you know, there's spending happening that, that shouldn't have been happening, uh, particularly when it comes to corporate handouts. You know, I, I was one of the folks from the very beginning of the pandemic uh, back in, in May 2020, uh, raising the alarm about uh, the lack of controls on the corporate Side of the pandemic uh, uh, handouts. You know that, that on the SERB side, the individual side, that was absolutely crucial. There weren't enough controls in place on the corporate side, and it's no. not just uh, you know those pandemic programs. It's fossil fuel subsidies. It's, it's pouring billions of dollars into the T M X pipeline. But there are bigger areas where our spending is actually far too low, and, and we could okay. get into that as well to, to meet some of the big challenges of our time, okay, climate let me crisis, go. and many others.
0: Let me go back to Franco. So, Franco, what do you say to that argument that the debt, okay, these are obviously some eye-popping numbers for sure. When you go over a trillion bucks for the first time, that gets a lot of attention. But when you compare it to the size of the Canadian economy or GDP, Alex is arguing that, you know, we're in a a good spot. Your thoughts?
4: Well, why did Alex pick the G7, right? Just expand it to other industrialized countries. The IMF does this. And Canada does not rank very well. If you actually look at gross debt to GDP, it could even be more than the entire output in the economy. So these are eye-watering numbers. But Alex is right. These massive $1 trillion federal debt numbers, it's hard to take in. And that's why we put a your share of the federal government debt, what you owe. And right now, it's more than $30,000 that each Canadian owes. And, Mike, I do not know too many Canadians. I myself certainly don't have tens of thousands of dollars just lying around to pay for these politicians' credit card bills. And, Mike, I have to talk about one thing Alex said. He said interest costs are low. Interest costs this year, $25 billion. That can't hire more nurses. Yeah, whoa, $25 billion that can't hire more nurses, that can't make our roads have less potholes. That's also $25 billion that can't stay into Canadians' pockets and help through these absolutely crushing inflationary times because that $25 billion, by the way, that's going to the bond fund managers on Bay Street. And it's not just there. That's that's every year we're losing out on that money. Hey,
0: Franco, did you say, like, okay, on Alex's point that we've got the lowest GDP ratio in the G7... And you took you disputed that. Like, are you saying what there? There are other countries, other big industrialized countries outside of the G G seven that have got less debt than us. Is that your point, or
4: that have that have yes that 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 is. Like, what? which con- which countries? It. So, I, I I'm, unfortunately I don't have the list on the top of my head. But if you go Fraser Institute, Financial Post, you'll be able to see it right there. Canada isn't as good as as you led on when you take. When you expand the number of countries and you don't just look at net debt, but you also look at the total debt that the federal okay. government is going to have to pay back.
0: Okay, Alex Hemingway, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's
7: there's a lot to unpack here for folks. Uh, I would say, you know, any serious economist will compare the debt to GDP and they'll look at the net debt because you, what that does is that nets out, you know, your very liquid assets that you hold as a country, but not... Not your fixed assets, but let, let's not go too far down that rabbit hole. Uh, you know, we have a low uh, debt to GDP ratio. The bigger issue, uh, from my perspective, is that we've actually been through a period of two or three decades in this country where we're chronically under investing uh, in public services and infrastructure. And again, you know, you don't have to take it from uh, you know from me from sort of a, a left. Leaning economists, you can uh, talk to uh, the IMF, uh, uh, the OECD. IMF economists will tell you in their most recent research that public capital is undersupplied in OECD countries, that public investment raises economic output. In the short and long term, it crowds in private investment. It reduces unemployment uh, with limited effect on public debt ratio. I'm literally quoting uh, to you from the IMF. And just to let's make this a little bit more concrete though, you know, we know that we're facing very big challenges as a society, climate action a housing crisis, the unaffordable child care, poverty. These are areas that are not going to resolve uh, themselves of their own accord. We do need to invest together through our shared institutions to address them. And we need to okay. actually look at taxing the rich uh, uh, to do that, which is not something that's happening right now at an adequate level.
0: Okay, Franco, so Alex makes the argument that we've got to spend here. There's lots of cost pressures. You know, we heard something similar from Justin Trudeau in that clip that we played here saying that we went through this unprecedented pandemic, and he says the government had Canadians' backs. Yeah, they spent billions, hundreds of billions of dollars helping Canadians through this through this crisis. Do you think he spent too much? Like, did the, the Liberals spend too much uh, during COVID? $511
4: billion during COVID, half a trillion dollars. But, Mike, the context that we need to talk about is this government has been overspending for years, racking up massive credit card bills. Mike, in 2018, before the pandemic, the federal government was spending all-time highs, even after accounting for inflation and population growth, which means that the federal government, before pandemic, spent more than it did that year than it did during any single year during World War II. But here's why it really matters for Canadians. The federal government, through its massive deficits being financed, a good part by the printing press, and the more dollars that the federal government central bank prints up, the less that your dollars in your bank account, in your savings account, will buy. So you have Ottawa actively using the printing press to finance its deficits, which means that you have Ottawa using its deficit spending, which is eating away at people's paychecks. Inflation, three decades high, and people are feeling the pain. It's because of the massive government borrowing.
0: Hey, Franco, real quick, and then we'll fit in a break here, but Alex's point that... Okay, he he argues that we've got got to keep spending, and we need revenue, and money doesn't grow on trees, although apparently you can print it. But let me ask you this. Alex made the point about tax the rich, bring in a wealth tax. That's how you fund it. What do you say to that? Yeah, and guess
4: who ends up paying it a few years down the road? They'll keep lowering the threshold, lowering the threshold, and then eventually it's everyday Canadians that get clobbered. Remember the income tax? Well, that was supposed to be temporary. It was supposed to hit only high-income individuals. Now, if you have a paycheck, you're probably still paying that income
0: tax. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue our great debt debate on the show today. Canada's long-term debt has just hit a trillion dollars. My guests are Alex Hemingway and Franco Terrazano. The phone lines are open. Is the debt too high? Did the government overspend during COVID? Should we tax the rich to pay for it? 604 280 9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Hey, Alex, just before we take a, a phone call here, your thoughts on Franco's point there about a wealth tax? So he's saying that, okay, yeah, we start out taxing the rich, but then it starts to trickle down and everybody else gets t- hammered with taxes too. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think when people
7: look at the state of
0: wealth inequality in this
7: country, the vast majority of Canadians are outraged. You know, the the richest 87 families in the country uh, control more wealth than the bottom 13 million. And when you ask Canadians about this, you know, uh, would you support a wealth tax on the super rich? Uh, You get massive support. You get 85, 90% support, and it crosses party lines. So just about everyone agrees on this in principle. And the good news is there's lots of economic research to back it up. So I would be very wary when anyone tells you, particularly the rich try and tell you that there's nothing we can do about this inequality. Oh, better not touch our wealth. Don't worry. You know, you'll get yourself in trouble if you do. Uh, No, we're not stuck in this situation. We have lots of options. The wealth tax is one of them. There are other uh, uh, tax policy options that focus on the super rich and uh, we shoot ourselves in the foot every day that we don't, invest in some of the big crises that we're facing right now, okay. whether that's childcare, climate, uh, pharmacare, many others that we're not acting on adequately. Okay, let's finish. So I'm not
4: phone. hearing an answer there because that's, yeah. that's what always happens. They bring in a tax. They say, oh, don't worry, the rich will pay. And then what happens? They start to cut the threshold. Look in 2019 when the NDP first proposed a wealth tax. Well, two years later, 2021, they proposed a wealth tax threshold that was cut in half. Look what happened in France. They bring in a wealth tax. They, they're going to so-called soak the rich then they stop moving a threshold with inflation, and more and more people get bumped up into paying the tax. Look, this government doesn't need to tax us anymore. We pay enough taxes. What the government needs to do is what everyone else is doing, and that's tighten their belt and find some ways to save money.
0: Okay, Star just, 9. Just to put, go, oh,
7: ahead, go ahead, Alex. Go just ahead and just respond. Just to put some quick perspective on it. Uh, look, uh, it, it, if you think about the wealth tax proposals that are on the table in Canada, if you're in the top 1%, Uh, you're not rich enough to be affected by this wealth tax. We're talking about taxes that would impact the top 0.2%. And if those folks, you know, want to convince you that there's no way to tax them and that you shouldn't bother, well, I I, I wouldn't be drawn in by that argument. But it's a very convenient one.
0: Okay, let's squeeze in a phone call here. Daryl on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl, go ahead. Hi, thanks taking my call
3: uh, in a weekend uh, interview as far as government spending during the pandemic the former governor of uh, the bank of canada stephen polow said that the government of canada did an excellent job monetarily fighting uh the pandemic also uh, to, to your guest from the policy alternatives Yes, Hollande France tried that. Bernard Arnault said, I'm moving to Belgium. The British tried this a long time ago. And in Canada, we do not have enough wealthy people. We don't have the Elon Musks of the world and the Bloombergs of the world. There just aren't enough of them. And your other guest is correct. The threshold will
0: keep moving down. Okay, what do you, Okay, Alex, what do you say to that? Yeah, so
7: a couple things. Uh, first of all, as far as a wealth tax proposal in Canada goes, we're talking about serious revenue here. We're talking about $27 billion in the first year alone. That's enough to uh, cover the full cost of universal child care, of making uh, post-secondary education free, among many other uh, uh, priorities. So it's not actually small potatoes. That may have been true, you know, a, a couple of decades ago, that you know, our rich, weren't rich enough, that has changed in a big, big way. And, you know, when you look at the types of revenue estimates you get on a wealth tax, whether it's here or in the United States, you know, this is coming from serious economists like uh, uh, Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Saez at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, They did the the congressional costing for uh, the Sanders and Warren wealth taxes. But if you don't like wealth tax as a mechanism, there are many other options at our disposal. Today, we uh, actually tax uh, income from capital at half the rate we tax income from actual work from people okay,
0: Franco. Uh, earning a wage. So yeah, we, we I've, got, a, Frank, well. okay. I've okay. got another option. I've got another option. 30 seconds, go ahead.
4: Yeah, i got another option. How about these politicians in Ottawa stop giving themselves pay raises, three of them during the pandemic. How about we stop giving more than 312,000 federal government bureaucrats a pay raise while their neighbors working in the private sector sector lose their job, take pay cuts while businesses are closed down? Right, okay. we, we talk about this inequality. Well, the inequality I'm seeing is the government continues to give themselves raises while the private sector continues to struggle through their tax hikes, through the revolving government lockdowns.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about this extraordinary ruling we have here now from BC's Director of Police Services who has just ruled that the Vancouver Police Department should not have been denied an additional $5.7 million in its budget back in 2020 and has now ordered that money should be put back into the police budget. They are celebrating this ruling over at the Vancouver Police Department. The VPD had been complaining for some time, been unfund- underfunded. They were really angry about that budget cut. And now look at this. Wow, the province stepping in here to restore that money. I've got reporter Mike Howell standing by. I'll talk to him in just a moment. Have a listen to this now. Now, this is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. He was on the show last week. This is before this ruling had come out. And I asked him about it. I asked about this fight with the Vancouver Police Department, this appeal to the province to overrule and restore this budget cut. Listen to how he answers my question here on this. Have a listen. Mayor Stewart, When you make the point that you believe the police should be fully funded in the city of Vancouver, it was not long ago that the Vancouver Police Department put forth a budget request for an additional $5.7 million to address the crime and the rising pressures on them to protect citizens in this city, and you're part of a city council that rejected it and effectively froze the, froze the police budget, forcing the police department to actually no, appeal totally to the problem. There.
7: Mike, they are totally mistaken there. What? If, you go to the, if you go to the budget this year, the police were not only fully funded, their request was fully funded, they actually gave them additional funds to meet uh, their contract, uh, their collective agreement uh, obligations. So the police are fully funded. A million dollars a day goes into policing and uh, I really commend Chief Palmer for using these resources wisely and moving them around the city when he discovers hotspots through their uh, you know, their analysis.
0: Okay, Van- Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking to me on the show last week. And now we have this ruling, $5.7 million ordered back into the Vancouver police budget. Let's discuss it now with my guest reporter, Mike Howell, very fine reporter for com who has done a great job in this story, and I encourage you to check out uh, his report on this. Follow me on Twitter. You'll find it there. I just I just posted it for you. Mike, thanks for coming on today. Hey, my pleasure, Mike. Hey, Mike, can you explain this for the listeners, like how this budget battle started here? This goes back to 2020, right?
6: Yeah, sure. What happens, just so your listeners are aware, probably many of them are, but the police board sets the budget for the VPD, so they do that, and then about a week later, they punt it over to uh, city council, and then it's up to council to decide whether they agree with what the police board, um, you know, set as the budget. So back in 2020, they set their budget, said we want X number of dollars. It goes to city hall, and they always have the budget debates in December. There's back and forth on that. In the end, a majority of council said, no, you don't need that extra 5.7 million. Um, So it took a few months. The police board then decided that, hey, we're going to appeal this, which is very rare and maybe unprecedented in uh Vancouver's history, and sent it over to Victoria. And now we have this decision.
0: Yeah, now that is astonishing. And we have this decision now from the province that does this effectively now force the city of Vancouver to find $5.7 million and put it back in the police budget? Is that the impact of this now?
6: Yeah, well, the city manager, uh, Paul Mulchry, sent me a a note yesterday saying that, um, you know, the the budget reserves will cover this off, but for uh, uh, 2023, it it could uh, mean a property tax increase. Um, So uh, there was no provision in this year's, in the past year's budget, uh, you know, from council to say, hey, just in case this ruling is in favor of the police board, have we got enough to cover this? And um, so that that um, that didn't enter into to much debate um, in the last co round.
0: Okay, $5.7 million is a fair chunk of change. Yeah. And as you mentioned that this could result in a property tax increase right like how much of a property tax increase are we talking about here
6: i think it was like 0.62 percent but okay. uh, yeah which doesn't sound like a lot but you have to keep in mind that for the past 16 years the vpd has uh, you know balanced this budget there's been no problem um with the city with city hall um but uh that has certainly changed and there just seems to be um uh, you know this real tension between the current council and the police department right now
0: yeah speaking to mike Howell, reporter for vancouverisawesome.com on the vancouver police budget battle here and uh the, i know they're very happy over at vpd with this ruling 5.7 million dollars is ruling from the province to restore that funding to the vancouver police department Mike, why did the why did the Vancouver Police Department, the Police Board, why did they want this extra money? What what was the money supposed to pay for?
6: Well, at the time, uh, one of the vice chairs, Barge Dehan, said, "Well, you know, if we don't get this 5.7 million, uh, we won't be able to hire. I think it was in the neighborhood of 60 or 61 new recruits." Right. So that was turned, and then uh, the chief at the time, uh, just before the decision. Um, the council made was saying you know this is basically a status quo keep the lights on budget he made references to an operational review that was done well more than a decade ago saying you know um we need more cops and uh he said that we were at 2009 levels in terms of the complement of officers on the street yeah. um but at the same time you know i've written a lot of stories about police board and crime stats and that and just recently i wrote a story about um, how crime continued to plummet in 2021 so i know there's a lot of people on twitter today saying hey come on like why why should they get this money when crime's been plummeting uh, you know especially property crime uh, you know violent crime stranger attacks those kind of things uh, have escalated, But in terms of like somebody breaking into your car, uh, breaking into your home, breaking into your business, that has dropped and the pandemic is a big reason for that. And there's, you know, certain neighborhoods in the city that are affected more than others, uh, for sure. And, you know, kind of downtown Mount Pleasant Olympic Village, that, that whole area there has been affected more than other areas of the city.
0: Police police spending in Vancouver has been a hot political issue. Mike, as you know, you've written a lot about it, and there are some Vancouver City councillors who appear to be in that kind of defund the police camp that we should hire more, I don't know, social workers to deal with people who are having episodes involved with mental illness and drug addiction on the streets of Vancouver. that doesn't necessarily require a police intervention, Let's yeah. defund the police and spend more on social services is that is that sort of part of this debate here that defund the police movement? is that what part well, of the, what role uh, does that play? Yeah, no,
6: absolutely. Mike uh, there's been several motions uh, from this council over the last term um, that kind of speaks to what what you're saying there about uh, defund and just uh, recently uh, this month actually, um, uh, this council was unanimous in supporting. This uh, program called Better Together, which um, targets uh, Mount Pleasant, Olympic Village, and downtown South. So, Granville Strip, Town, and they're going to spend like 665 k over the next 21 months and have a neighbourhood approach to a lot of the street disorder issues. Um, so, in, in that report and the rationale for doing that, it outlines all these previous motions that have gone before Council, that are looking at, um, you know, other ways um, to do stuff that the police normally do. And I, I have to say in my interviews over the years with uh, Police Chief Palmer, uh, I believe this was last year or the previous year, he told me that, you know, a lot of people are, um, you know, critical of the police and saying the police shouldn't be dealing with, you know, the, you know mental health, uh, people in a mental health crisis, drug addiction and that. And the chief said, uh, "You know, the one agency in this uh, city that's been pushing for more housing and treatment, and that is the VPD. So you, yeah. you can take that from him, or you know, you know, make up your own mind uh, about his comments. But um, certainly, there's been the, the evidence that um, you know the police are the first responders to a lot of stuff in this city. And 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 he said he's willing to discuss this further, but um, you know, he doesn't want to be yelled at." <laughs> Table. He just wants people to bring together the evidence and have a discussion about it. So yeah, there is a real kind of flavor of that uh, moving forward in the city. But there is an election in October, Mike, as you yeah. know, well. and so um, um, some of these people may or may not be on that council come next budget round which occurs in December. So
0: yeah, I think I think police spending and crime in general is going to be a key issue uh, in this election in the fall for sure. Mike, good job on this yeah. story. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, appreciate it, Mike. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the Vancouver Police Budget Battle, $5.7 million. That's how much the province is ordered to be restored to the Vancouver Police Budget. Lots of calls on this one. Let's quickly check in with Doug Spencer, former Vancouver Police Department uh, constable, 30 years with the VPD. Hey, Doug. How you doing, buddy? I'm do- I'm good, Doug. Thank you for coming out. What do you think of this ruling? Well, it's
8: a step forward for sure. Um, you know, I, I don't think people understand the cost of making people safe. And like I can tell you from investigations I've done in the homicide, gang homicides, that that can be 3 to $5 million, those investigations. So, you know, nobody's turning their nose up to get it in the $5 million. It all helps. But, you, you know, to get results... You need to fund things, right? Yeah.
0: Okay, let's uh, squeeze some calls in here, Doug. See what people think. Rick on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Hi. There's a couple of questions. This his- this council
5: has a history of not dealing with uh, of dealing with spending issues that are not um, required by a uh, city taxpayers. They're a federal and a provincial issue, and I think it was yeah. uh, was it not 250 million of that is what we're doing right now in 20. 20- when COVID hit, this mayor is the one who screamed out, we're in trouble, we're in trouble. Whereas other mayors just hunkered down and dealt with it. Didn't we not have a $200 million surplus at that time? And this issue is really going to hurt
0: when he cut back. How many officers on the street are we going to lose to the Surrey Department? And that's a okay, big you, concern. Th- thank you for that, raising that point. Doug, are you hearing any about any Vancouver police officers who are going over to work at the new Surrey Police Department?
8: Oh, yeah, there's numerous officers from all over the Lower Mainland are going
0: there. Yeah. Okay. Daryl on the line in South Surrey. Hi, Daryl. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm offended by the city hall thinking that the taxpayers that live there have deep pockets and just can continue to pay this costs over and above inflation over and above any of our pay raises. You know, I want to fund the police Cut some of the other crap out of their budget and use it for the important things that is where our taxes should go.
0: Yeah, okay. And the earlier, thank you for the call. An earlier caller made that point as well about spending being done by this particular city council that is not municipal jurisdiction. There's a lot of programs that are provincial responsibility, federal responsibility. You know, like a disposable cup fee. I mean, the environment, protection of the environment is typically provincial and federal responsibility, not. Not local. Robin in Vancouver. Hey, Robin, go ahead.
1: There, um, I work in the mental health field. I've done it for years and years. Um, A lot of us are frustrated because our programs are being cut, our hands are tied, and we understand the police um, having the same uh, kind of problems with the laws. They're in in one door and out the other. Um, There's a lot of property crime as well, and that's frustrating because now taxpayers are still paying for their property crime. Plus, now they got to pay probably more taxes. Um, my my issue is nothing's changed. Um, in the last while, um, you know, funding has gone down. Um, people, Riverview is still a, a hot topic. Um, what are they doing? Are they there? Are they not there? Is there enough beds? Um, really, prevention. And this really disappoints me that the VPD didn't come out with a different approach other than Doug saying, uh, yeah, well... Um, we're going to do this and we need it and it's expensive. That's really, well, that's me, really, really insulting.
0: Okay. Well, thank <laughs> you, for, thanks for that, Doug. I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a defund the police movement out there who think that police shouldn't respond to mental health calls and maybe it should be like a social worker instead. But a lot of these calls though, you correct me if I'm wrong, involve violence or threats of violence. Your thoughts.
8: Yeah. You know, Mike, I, I worked a couple of times in the mental health car with a healthcare worker, and that is one of the most important cars in Vancouver. I'll tell you right now. Uh, I, I was blown away by the how they were able to deal with these mentally ill people. We, we get very we get some training, com, you know, compared to other departments that don't get much, but. Like mental health, it, we've been saying for years that they should be going to calls and dealing with mentally ill people. But some of them, unfortunately, schizophrenic and stuff, they can be very violent and it can turn really bad fast. And, uh, you know, the times I worked it, I was this there to make sure the mental health worker didn't get hurt. And yeah. luckily, nothing happened because of their expertise. So... We're not on the different page with the lady that just spoke. We have been saying for years that they should be the ones at the front end of dealing with mental health pe- uh,
0: people. Doug, thank you for coming on today. You're more than welcome. All right, here we go now with sky-high gas prices, the pain at the pumps, excruciating right now, the war in Ukraine, slamming global oil prices. Now, the price of a barrel of oil has actually come down a little bit the last few days, but The price of gas does not seem to budge. That seems like a familiar story. Lots of people are hurting from these high gas prices. Have a listen to this report now from Global News.
1: It's getting crazy. Between food prices, gas prices, car prices, everything is just, you can't even, I have a good job and I can't even afford to feed three kids. It's ridiculous. Gas is insane and, you know, 50 cents of that is taxes. Carbon tax needs to go right away. My biggest concern is how it's impacting families. Maybe just change to the hybrid, maybe. There's got to be
5: some sort of balance here at some point yeah. before people start leaving the province.
1: If I could, I would change it back to prices 10 years ago.
0: Okay, those are some of the voices uh, talking to global news about those high gas prices. Okay, what to do about it now? Well, how about get rid of your gas guzzler? Buy an EV. An electric vehicle instead let's discuss now with my guest john stonier john is the past president of the vancouver electric vehicle association and i'm very pleased to welcome him back Hi, john yeah good morning mike hey john thanks a lot for doing this you must be a busy man people must be asking you about electric vehicles all the time right now with these record high gas prices what are you hearing out there
5: Absolutely. The past couple of weeks have been crazy. Media have been contacting us to talk about, you know, the, the value of electric cars. And and essentially electric cars are the, are the solution to high gas prices. Yeah. And they're the solution to our uh, climate change issues as well.
0: Is there a shortage of gas vehicles out there? Like if I wanted to go out and buy a good quality used electric vehicle, um, am I going to have a challenge finding one for sale?
5: Absolutely. It ha- yeah. started to get thin about six months ago. Um, and, uh, with supply chain issues, uh, all cars became tough to get and electric cars are are the one in demand. they, They are the ones in demand. So, uh, starting about September of last year, no used cars are available. It's been really pretty much of a drought here.
0: Yeah. And I suppose the people who do have one are hanging on to them to a great degree as well. That's, if, exact, that's exactly it. Once you yeah. drive
5: electric, you're never going to go back. You've, you're <laughs> probably driving the best car you've ever driven in your life, and uh, there's no reason to go back. So once you have them, they hold on to them. The only people that are selling electric cars right now are because they're upgrading their cars to the next model or a, or a newer model.
0: Right, yeah. No, the market is tight for sure. What about prices? Is that driving up prices for electric vehicles right now?
5: Absolutely. There's price. Contention with all the costs of supply uh, throughout the supply chain. You know, uh, Ukraine. If uh, Russian Russian nickel goes offline, that's 20% of the world supply. Nickel is broadly used in electric cars um, and other and other things. Uh, absolutely. I I bought a used EV. Probably one of the last ones to buy one. Early last September, and that same model is now
0: at least $5,000 more than what I paid for. Whoa. Oh, whoa. Holy inflation. That's a, it's, that's a it's lot. supply and demand. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's what it is. People want these vehicles. So, yeah, the price is going to go up for sure. I'm speaking to John Stoney, your past president Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. So, when we talk about the price tag for, let's talk about a used vehicle and how much it costs. Like, what is the price range, if you can source one, how much should you expect to pay for a good used uh, used EV? Or a new one, well, for that matter.
5: Yeah, at this point in time, late model ones that are built in the last five years really hold their value well. I mean, uh, with uh, you don't get the uh, price incentives, the rebates with the used ones. So, with taking the rebates with the new price and the used price, there's not a big difference. And and mm. essentially, you can. A lot of people I know have bought, you know, brand new a few years ago, and they sell them for the same price they bought them for. Uh, there wow. is a price uh, elevation going up in the in the cars, and that's going up everywhere. But I think if you look at the you the look at the car market generally, seventy five percent of all cars sold in a year are used cars. Most people don't buy new cars. Uh, and use are, are the best value. I, as an accountant, have always bought used cars because that's where the value is. Um, and the problem with the EVs was when I first bought my first one, there weren't any out there. There's no used cars. Now there are more subject to our current supply chain issues. Um, and that's the way to get into a use, uh, an EV. And the great thing about EVs is they will last a long, long time. You know, uh, a gas car might last 10 years on average. Um, I expect EVs to be lasting 20, 30, 50 years. Um, The only thing that will be changed out on them will be the batteries. Um, And, well, batteries are the supply chain choke point at this point in time.
0: Yeah, and what about the... uh, There are so many questions about EVs when people think about getting into one, and one of the most common questions you hear, John, I'm sure you get it all the time, is what distance can you drive on a full charge? And I guess that depends on the the make and model in the year of manufacture for the vehicle, right? But what, what is, what is the sort of the range we're looking at right now?
5: Yeah, that is really the red herring. That's the wrong way to look at things. Um, you have to look at what your needs are. If The average driver in North America drives 50 kilometers a day. That is about five days worth of range for a low end um, electric car for a high end electric car. It's almost 10 days worth of range. So so really, that is the wrong way to look at it. You should look at it. At what is, what are your needs? I have a, I have a, like for instance, I have a, a first generation Nissan Leaf that I bought 10 years ago. Now its range is probably down to 80K a day. But as my daily driver in downtown Vancouver, I, I, I am hard pressed to put on 20K a day. And, um, that's four days before I need to recharge it. So, um, it's all what you need. Um, And I think there's a problem with most people buying cars. They're buying for that, you know, oh, I need to be able to drive that 500K distance, you know, once a year. And they buy a whole car around that. When most days they're driving 20, 30, 40K is a normal sort of commute. And that's all you need. So I think people have to really assess what their driving requirements are. And if you need that long distance car. You can just rent it. You can pick up an uh, EVO on the street. You can do a whole bunch of things as opposed to buying it.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. You also talked briefly about the the credits that are still available out there, right? So if you buy a used EV, there are no government incentives or rebates or tax credits available. Is that correct? It only applies to a new EV? Actually, we did have a great system with
5: the it program that uh, just sort of shut down in 2022. And that used to provide up to... Up to $3,000 for a used EV, a 6000 for a new, on top of the other rebates. Um, some of the rebates are once a lifetime. You can only use them once. And um, the only thing for used EVs right now is in the new budget uh, passed in February, uh, there's a PST exemption on used EVs for the next five years till 2027.
0: Right. Okay. Yes, I did spot that in the budget. But what if you're buying, let's say you're buying a new EV, are there still some pretty generous and attractive credits and rebates available? In British Columbia, 5000 from the federal government and 3000 from the provincial government uh,
5: based on certain price limitations. You can't buy a high-end EV and get those brakes, but you can buy up to, I believe it's... Uh, fifty five thousand base price will get you the the, um, the federal credit and again on budget uh, the provincial uh, provincial government uh, reduced luxury taxes on luxury PST taxes on EVs up to seventy five thousand for another seven uh, for, for another five years
0: okay well that's that's not bad there's, there's still some good attractive deals out there for the for the rebates and the tax credits if you can find a vehicle right like As you can find a vehicle,
5: and that's
0: the rub. Yeah, yeah. So for a new vehicle, like what are you hearing from dealers? Are they back ordered? Um, Yes,
5: it's ranging from about uh, six months to almost a couple years, depending on the model you want. A good friend of mine um, is waiting for her VW ID4. She ordered last July. It was supposed to be December. It's now March. No sign of where that that boat is. Although there was a Apparently a big shipment of VWs uh, docked in Halifax the other week. And so maybe there's some ones heading out this way. You know, we have a real supply problem and um, that's not going to go away unless, I mean, the demand for electric cars around the world is high. And we've got to compete for getting those cars on our, in our showrooms. And uh, really the solution for Canada and the opportunity for Canada is to produce EVs here. The golden horseshoe is traditionally where we've produced cars in Canada, but you know, electric are a whole new ball game. It's a whole new economic activity. We've got all the resources in Canada to build the batteries. In fact, there already are foundational, three or four foundational battery producing companies here in in Canada. We can build on that. And if we had our own supply, we would have much more security of, of accessing those cars.
0: All right, welcome back. Talking electric vehicles with John Stoney, our Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. Lots of calls here. Dan in Vancouver. Hi, Dan, go ahead. Look,
6: I think that electric is definitely going to be the, the way of the future, but I have big issues with the slave labor required to get the minerals for these batteries, um, number one. Number two, a buddy of mine bought um, electric, Battery's gone. They want seven thousand dollars. So he found this guy uh, who knows a guy who says he'll he'll do it for three thousand. So I'm leery. I, I, I mean, uh, okay. I'm going to do it one day, but not until first of all we have ethical practices, and secondly, reliable batteries.
0: Okay, let me ask John about that. John, your thoughts.
5: Well, uh, Canada has all the minerals in, in uh, Canada to build electric cars. And uh, we have very high standards on environment and ov- obviously for working conditions. So uh, Canada can go forward and do this. Um, on a world supply can't speak for certain supply chains. That's sort of out of our hands. But there's something we can do here in Canada by developing uh, our own uh, resources.
0: What about the cost to replace batteries? I've heard that, that before, too. Yeah,
5: that is a that is more tough uh, issue, and I'm looking to replace the battery in my 2012 Leaf uh, at some point in time. And um, the problem is, uh, yeah, they do want $7,000 for a new one. Uh, actually, it's a bit more than that for Nissan. Um, and supply them is tough because yeah. basically they, they're trying to build new cars rather than fixed used cars. They want to sell a new car. I think what's going to happen is at some point in time, somebody will, an aftermarket will develop and aftermarket batteries will be provided for. In the meantime, uh, it's very labor-intensive to break down a battery pack, replace the one cell that's causing problems or two cells and put them back together. It's labor-intensive and it's
0: not practical. So, yeah, sorry, John, let me go back to the, let's squeeze in a couple of calls here while we can. Mary and Coquitlam. Hi, Mary, go ahead.
2: Hi. Um, my husband and I purchased a Nissan LEAF about four years ago. Haven't looked back. It's a lovely car to drive. You know, it doesn't cost anything for maintenance. You know, it's, it's great. I love it.
0: Thank you, Mary. Well, that's like you said, John, when you go electric and you don't go back. Let's go to Laura Lee on the line in Richmond. Hi, Laura Lee. Go ahead. Oh, I guess we lost Laura Lee. Let's go to Stephen in Burnaby. Hey, Stephen.
4: Hi, guys. I I have a question about uh, the level of kilowatts required to actually consider it an electric vehicle. I'm thinking of the Kia SUV, and I read somewhere that it has to be at least 18 kilowatts or or approximately there to be considered an EV. Is that correct?
5: Oh, I think you're thinking about the energy in kilowatt hours. Um, If it's a plug-in hybrid, it usually has a small battery pack, maybe... Uh, maybe no more than seven or eight kilowatt hours, um, just it 'll take you like sixty k and that 's it and then you're then you 're running a gas generator to charge up the rest of the battery so that 's the distinction between all EV
0: and a plug in e v okay, so even th- hope that helps you let 's go to try Laura Lee again. Hi Laura Lee in Richmond. Hi
2: hi thanks. I have an e v the little smart car absolutely love it it 's a hundred percent electric convertible. My battery, it's from 2016. The battery isn't keeping quite as much charge. Is there anything I can do to boost it in terms of how I'm charging it?
5: John? Uh, on how you're charging it, um, batteries last longer if you keep them between, well, as of Jeff Don said, uh, who's a researcher in Dalhousie, between 50 and 70% you can cycle back and forth and have virtually zero degradation. But if you keep it between 30 and 80%, That'll that'll preserve battery life for longevity much better. Don't keep a battery at 100% state of charge all the time. Uh, fully charged, that that is actually a pressure point on the battery. And don't let it uh, drop down past uh, 30 or 20%. Is oh. absolute maximum.
0: Oh, interesting tip. Okay, Brian and Coquitlam. Where's your laptop batteries too? Oh, isn't that interesting? Okay, I didn't I hadn't heard that one before. Let's go to Brian and Coquitlam. Hey, Brian, go ahead. We got a minute left. Hey, right.
7: Right. Okay, uh, that battery thing, it's because that last 10% is the hardest on the battery. But anyways, uh, my gripe is with the subsidies. Uh, I believe that it's based on the price of the car when I think it should be based on the person's income. Because the people that make use of it are the ones that can already afford to buy the electric car without the subsidy anyway. And people like me that want to buy a car, I don't have enough to buy even with the subsidy, which kind of sucks. I also think the future is going to be synthetic fuels, not, not
0: electric cars. But okay, anyway. we got th- we got 30 seconds left. John? Well, pr- um, subsidies
5: are a tough thing to, you know, that's sort of a political um, decision how to do that. But uh, as far as synthetic fuels, you're still uh, tying yourself to an engine that's only 20%. 20% of the energy that goes into that engine actually right. tr- takes torque, produces John- torque.
0: It's 80% for electric. John, we could probably fill the whole show taking calls with you. Thanks. We'll have to have you back. Thanks for coming on today. You're welcome.